The old joke, there's only two things in life that are certain, death and taxes. And I certainly wish that were true in some cases, but I would suspect there's one that has been left off. Pain. I think that's probably since really the fall and the curse, one that you can take to the bank. Pain. Remember the movie watching as a child where they're having the witty banter and the interchange and one of the guys responds, life is pain. Okay, maybe that's a bit dramatic. Maybe. But if you actually kind of stop to consider what life is like in other parts of the world, maybe that's actually a little bit more true for most than I might like to believe. I mean, I know I'm young. I'm in my 30s. The idea of life being pain is very far off. For some of you, every morning, you understand that in a way that I don't get. I remember before coming here, having one of the old men in the church explain to me, do you know what it's like to be my age? And I said, no, sir. And he said, it's like being 28 and having the flu every day. (laughs) Oh, that's awful. That's awful. You see, the reality of the matter is we like passages that deal with the things that we like to talk about, that we like to enjoy, and there are passages that we like to skip over. And this is one of those books that interestingly deals with a topic that we deal with every day. It deals with pain. And it's interesting, one of those books that we don't really spend that much time reading. I mean, I know you, in your you know, normal fascination with locusts, you read this all of the time. But most of us, we don't read Joel that often. In fact, actually, how many of you, don't raise your hand, please, this would be embarrassing. But even as we're reading this, you're going, really, he's doing a sermon series here. (laughs) Well, of course he is, actually. Now that makes sense. Of course he is. And even more so, this is dealing with not just pain of individual kind. It's not just waking up in the morning and having that trick hip really locking up and going, oh man. Or the cold weather going, I don't know how my knees are going to make it this week. Yikes, I'm longing for those 60s and 70s to hit again. This is dealing with that really unpleasant kind of pain of national pain. This is 9-11 This is national tragedy. This is uh, the great kind of conglomeration of suffering of a people. And it's hard. In the book of Joel, we have introduced here, it's the word of the Lord. This is God's word. It came to Joel, a prophet, son of Pethul, and that's about all we know. It's fun reading all of the commentaries and the kind of mental gymnastics that guys go through and the theologians trying to figure out who, what, when, where, why, how, and the reality of the matter is, we don't know. There's a dozen guys at least with the name of Joel. We don't know if this is any one of those in the rest of the scriptures. We have no idea. We don't really actually know when it is. This book, more than any others amongst conservatives, has a wide range of dates, almost a thousand years. Nobody has any idea when this is written, and I think that's significant. It's a book that's designed to be applicable to the moment. It's a book that's specifically written to be not so bound in one specific time and place, but a book that, as you read it, is supposed to speak to life today. And we trust in God's mercy that it will. A lot of this is going to deal specifically with how we as Christians endure suffering. And the sad thing is, I know it will be applicable. Been pastor long enough, 
been human long enough, been alive long enough to know. Passages on pain, how to deal with suffering, how to deal with tragedy, will always be applicable. So we dive in. Joel begins with an invitation at the very beginning. He begins with a kind of shocking, bold address to not just the people, but to the elders themselves, to the inhabitants of the land, to kind of shake them loose real quick, to get them engaged, to get them thinking, to get them out of their trauma for a moment, to get them out of their self-centeredness or pity, to get their brain engaged for the situation. And it begins with kind of two uh, counterpoints at the very beginning. Look, all of you, wake up, wake up, wake up, listen, wake up, listen, wake up, listen. Two things that I want you to have in your brain, even as we start, Joel says. First is, look at the tragedy. And do you remember ever hearing of anything so bad? I mean, do you remember it in your lifetime? Do you remember it in the lifetime prior to yours? Do you you remember things this bad? I love Joel even here beginning with locating this within kind of a proper framework. He's beginning, and we're going to see this as the kind of main point in the sermon, is to, to engage suffering for what it actually is. He's not trying to minimize it. He's not trying to discard it. He's not trying to be like, oh, a little uncomfortable and awkward. How are the Panthers doing this after? And try to change the subject. Notice that actually he, he actually engages it and engages it correctly. Now let's stop and think for a moment. All of Israel. This tragedy that we're in the middle of, can anybody think of another time it was this bad? I, I love too that that actually frees us in a little bit from false suffering. We all know the false suffering I'm talking about. The suffering that a 13-year-old boy feels the first time he's rejected by a girl. And the world is ending. (laughs) Has such a thing ever happened in your days or the days of your fathers? But yes, it happens all the time. You'll be fine, I promise. It'll be okay. No, Joel instead actually locates the suffering for what it actually is. He's trying to kind of begin and push into Israel's consciousness. Let's deal with pain. Let's deal with suffering. Let's deal with heartache for what it actually is. And then let's not miss the lesson attached to it. Tell it to your children. Let them tell it to their children. Let them tell it to their children's children. Uh, Let this become a part of your family story. This is really an interesting thing, I I find. Again, I, I, I visit a lot of people, probably more than most. I get to hear people's stories, their family stories, a bit more than most. And I don't know how many I can remember that start with the moments of suffering and destruction. Like, oh yeah, you want to hear about our family? This is it. It is blown up. But it's interesting, we do that with this church, don't we? If you want to talk about the history of Christ Ridge, it's not exactly pretty. We don't want to forget those lessons. 
We don't want to ignore those lessons. We don't want to put them away. We want to actually deal with the pain for what it is, and we want to keep the lesson as we learn it. You're going to see those reoccurring themes following through. Okay, well, what's happening? Joel's kind of given us the foundation. He's given us the framework to look at this, the don't ignore the pain, deal with it for what it is, and then also keep the lesson with you. Verse 4, he explains the situation. It's not good. What the cutting locust left, swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. And I will say, preparing for this, I have done lots of fun learning about locusts. (laughs) Hateful little creatures. No, actually, I mean, they're, they're standard grasshoppers. I didn't know that. They're just normal grasshoppers. What happens is as temperature and moisture and humidity and all of the kind of environmental things happen just right in their breeding cycle, instead of producing a normal breeding cycle harvest of grasshoppers, they lose their minds. They enter what is called a gregarious state and they go crazy to the point where a square meter can have 70,000 eggs. Do you think about that number a second? 70,000 eggs in a square meter? That's a big number, folks. If you think about a square mile, you're talking tens and twenties and thirties of millions of bugs. And the interesting thing, too, about these bugs is the way they grow. They go through multiple little stages where as they come out of uh, the egg, they're little burrows with you know, kind of eggs around on the inside. They come out and they kind of look like little ants almost and they start creepy crawling around and they start eating and then they start hopping and then they molt and then they start kind of fluttering a little bit and then they molt and then they turn into the full-blown little minions of evil that destroy the land. And it's interesting as they molt and as they grow through their progression, they eat different things. When they're the little ant type creature that can't really get far, they eat the stuff that's at hand. And then as they get a bit more mobile, they eat the stuff that then is accessible. And then as they get a bit more mobile, they eat what is then accessible. And then when they get big, they get mean and they eat the bark off of trees. These creatures are spectacular. Again, reading uh, weird things, weird things I read. One swarm was noted that they they tracked it 2,000 miles out into the ocean. I don't know how grasshoppers get that far. I didn't know they could fly like that, but they can. I read of one that was in the, I think it was in the 1890s, where they dug up the eggs to try to get rid of this, the, you know, the horde before they would uh, come out of the ground. And so they dug up all of the places where the, you know, it looked like they had laid the eggs and everything, and then they put it into crates and tried to you know, ship it away or burn it or whatever. And it was like 30,000 tons of dirt. Massive amounts of creatures, right? So this is the type of setting that they're talking about. These creatures come in. They're so bad now that actually when we see these things happening, they just nuke the ground. They take all of the pesticides that like cause massive types of cancer and they're like, it's worth it. And just, and just kill everything. That's why we don't see them very much anymore. The last one, I think it was a big one. It was in uh, in a North African country in the middle of civil war. And because the country was so unstable, they didn't have the opportunity to treat them in advance. And they made it all the way across North Africa before they got them killed. Unbelievable creatures. 
So what's happened in Israel is a national disaster. And it's really interesting as you think about what type of national disaster it is. Here we have a book that is designed around bugs. It's not, it's not Samson. It's not the Philistines. It's not Babylon. It's not Assyria. It's not, oh no, Sennacherib's coming. It's not, it's bugs. This is what we would call a natural disaster in our current terms, or uh, insurance land maybe an act of God, which it is. But it's interesting, this is a normal, run-of-the-mill, ordinary kind of pain. I mean, it's like spectacular in scope, but we're not talking about, um, you know, un- unusual tragedy. We're talking about earthquakes and volcanoes and tsunamis and all kinds of natural disaster. This is the kind of pain in which all humans have to live. The world in which all of us exist. And again, he's not minimizing in any way. He's explaining it. He's actually explaining it unbelievably thoroughly. Look, let's look at the different stages of these creatures and how they eat everything so that nothing is left. And then he begins with the people. I, I think I probably would have enjoyed Joel. He starts with just biting sarcasm. I probably would have enjoyed his sense of humor had we been able to hang out. I look forward to it in heaven. He begins where? With the drunks. All the drunks. All you drunkards. All you drunkards. Well, it's really an odd place to begin with. And then he kind of digs the knife in, I guess, so to speak. Oh, you drunkards, wake up. Sober up. And when you sober up, I want you to sober up for the purpose of crying. Well, that's an awful thing. And I want you to sober up and I want you to cry because the thing that you've been going crazy for, all of the alcohol that you've been craving is gone. Remember, everything's alcohol there because they have no refrigeration. So the second that you store grape juice, you have wine because it ferments naturally. So at this point, what is he saying? Look, you're stuck with water, which is going to upset your stomach and kind of wreck you a little bit. All of you drunks, you're going to sober up because you've lost the wine that you love to drink. You have the, you've lost the sweet wine, the, the extra alcoholic, right at the kind of peak of its fermentation process. Why? Because a new nation has come up to destroy mine. It's not a nation of Philistines. It's not a nation of Assyrians. It's not a nation of Babylonians. It's a nation of bugs. And they are hateful little creatures with teeth like lions. And those teeth have destroyed vine and fig tree. And they've actually stripped the bark down so that it's white. It's well documented. It's exactly what they do. They eat all the bark off and then eat the inside layer of the bark so that it leaves barkless trees that are not healthy. You think also for a drunk, particularly if they're any bit sober, they're going to realize that not only have they lost this round of alcohol, but how many harvests is it going to take for that fig tree or for that grapevine to begin to grow again? You didn't just lose this season's harvest. You lost years of harvests in the future. Now he picks up a different illustration, changes gears, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Uh, (coughs) Excuse me. This is uh, what we would consider like Mary and Joseph when she gets pregnant with Jesus in terms of the chronological timeline. 
They're married, thus bridegroom, but not yet married, thus virgin. Mourn as if you're a bridegroom, your husband that uh, you've not yet been married to fully, as if he just died. Grieve with that kind of sorrow. And why? Because not only has this national disaster hit, but this national disaster is actually going to influence the church. It's going to influence the house of God. The priests are weeping. The priests are crying. You don't have grain. You don't have wine. You don't have oil. And then he turns to the farmers and says, look, farmers, you too. All of it is destruction. Is destruction. Is destruction. You know, when you read these passages, they're hard to read. Until you're suffering. You know, passages like this are hard to read when you're happy. Now, I recognize there are some in the room that have natural dispositions. I'm one of these people. I'm, I'm happy almost all of the time. It's not a good thing, bad thing. It's just that's how my disposition has been since I was born. I'm thankful to the Lord for that. This is my natural. T- some have that same temperament. Some don't. God didn't give you that. Some of you are naturally sad creatures. Welcome to your book. It was written for you. It was designed for you to encourage you. Because as it begins, again, the Lord is holding both things in front of us. Remember, suffering is real. Pain is real. And we have to engage it at the right kind of impact point. We have to understand it for what it is, not overinflating it, underinflating it, not marginalizing it, but dealing with it in a real fashion. And keeping the point to learn. Now the challenge as, we, as I preach through Joel as we go through this together is going to be recognizing that one of us, depending on your temperament, is going to be inclined to forget either point A or point B. If you're the naturally happy person, naturally chipper, naturally kind of just on the high side of life all the time, your natural tendency is going to be to ignore the depth and reality of pain. You'll get the lesson part and you can kind of motor on and be done with it and that. But your tendency is going to be to ignore the depth of how much it hurts. If you're one of those folks that naturally is a bit more tender, a bit more sorrowful, you're going to be inclined to get that first one and understand it, right? I know what it's like to hurt. I know what it's like to be sad. I know what it's like to be sorrowful. I know what it's like to feel pain. And to stop there. And to miss that, oh, oh, no, 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 (laughs) it's for purpose, and the purpose is the point. What do you learn? What do you grow? How are you transformed? How do you understand the promises of God? How do you find them yes and amen in the Lord Jesus? How do we develop from this? You realistically, as a body, as we go through this over the next two months, these are going to be the challenges that we're going to wrestle through the entire time. How do I engage suffering correctly? How do I act, not marginalize it? How, how do I actually deal with it? But then also, how do I not get stuck there, but also move on to what I'm supposed to learn? Three points of application just as we start here in this first sermon before we get much further. First is this book is wonderful in that it should remind us as the people of God that we are not to be afraid of sorrow. We're not to be afraid of sorrow. 
of pain and sadness and hurt and heartache. And this is one area where I would say the American church has really betrayed us and our affluence has contributed to it and the, the, the nature of modern life. Social media, everything. We've basically created a world where our happinesses and our joys are public and our sorrows and our sadnesses are invisible. And the result of it is a church in which exists in America here where we think that only joy and happiness exists. And the result of it is a lot of times that we get really afraid of having to deal with sadness and sorrow because we don't know what it's like. We don't experience it corporately. We don't experience it with the people of God. And we get afraid of what it's like to step into the pain. When I was a seminary student, um, the seminary had a contract with or agreement with Presbyterian Hospital where we did the hospital chaplaincies in the evenings and on the weekends in the spring. And uh, I was young and very young and very silly when I did mine. I ended up having to do double duty because the guy that I was partnered with got the flu and I had to cover his shift as well. And I can honestly say there's nothing that I've done in all of my seminary career that was more terrifying than that for me. What do I have to say? How do I, I don't know what to do. I mean, I don't, I don't know what to do. My roommate, when he was doing his, uh, had a 21-year-old die on the table. He had to go in and counsel the nurses and the doctors in the operating room and then go out and counsel the family long enough to get the doctors compose themselves before they could go out and tell the family that their daughter was dead. I mean, as a young man, that terrified me, the idea of that. Why? Because so much of my life I'd been spent buffering, trying to get away from pain, as opposed to actually being willing to embrace it with other people. To have the body of Christ function as the body of Christ, where we step in together and say, all right, corporately, how are we going to do this? Let's not be afraid of the sorrow. Let's not be afraid of the sadness. Let's not be afraid of the pain. Let's do it together. Let's operate the way the body's supposed to operate. Let's be together. Let's be family. Our second challenge and application would be that we learn to embrace this kind of suffering, this reality, this dealing with pain, the growth that comes from it. It's interesting how the Lord Jesus himself is described, isn't it? A man of sorrows. One who is acquainted with grief. He is the suffering servant. In fact, actually, when he begins his ministry, his first sermon, what does he say? Blessed are poor in spirit. Oh, yeah, there's mourning right there, isn't it? Why? For they'll be comforted. But it's it's interesting that in the very DNA of who our Savior is and the very DNA of what his people are to be, it's mourning, it's sorrow and sadness. Now, over the right things. I'm not arguing that we become mopey people, right? We don't want a congregation of Eeyores. No, thank you. (laughs) I will guarantee you if we all turn into Eeyore, evangelism is going to be a much more challenging (laughs) issue. Everybody comes in, I don't want to go to that church. (laughs) You see that the final application ultimately we're building to is there's a danger That we, as we live in America, in the American church, where we have the greatest affluence in human history, we live in the most affluent country in human history, 
We have the highest standard of living in human history. We have the highest medical advances in human history. We have the best lives in terms of ease in human history. That's true. You can't argue that. I mean, just think about how easily you could get ibuprofen. I mean, when was that invented? Not that long ago. Well, I have a headache. Ibuprofen. Go to the dentist. A shot. Life is easy. There is the danger that we begin to define the church by the ease that our culture experiences. And to let that work backwards into our ecclesiology, our definition of what the church is. And the problem with that is that there are those in our midst that struggle deeply. I mean, there are some of us that like, you know, that one time you cry every three years is a really significant moment. There are some of us that one time you cry every three days is not that significant of a moment because it's one every three days. But it's important that the church is robust in understanding all of these things. I'm going to contend that I, I suggest that as you study church history, one of the great struggles that we had in American church is that when the boomers hit, we took the idea of suffering and we hid it. And when Gen X came into the church, we really began to struggle as a generation with the fact that any sort of pain was removed. It was, it was tucked away. It was hidden behind closed doors. It was done in closets and in places where you didn't talk about it. You didn't, you didn't deal with it. And they really began to see through that and wrestle with. We find that to be a very insincere process. And the millennials are just confused about it all. They don't know how to process these things. And so you have some churches that refuse to talk about it. And you have other churches that talk about it all of the time but never move past it. The challenge for us is as we go from this as a body of Christ, starting with the introductory sermon, and they are always the hardest, twofold, that we learn to embrace the pain, define it for what it is, and learn the lesson. This is your foundation for how to deal with suffering of any kind. You don't run from it. You hit it head on and you find the lesson. You see, this is what Joel is actually going to do with the people here. I'm not going to tip the hand as to where he goes, but it's going to be this twofold calling. Actually embrace the heartache and learn the lesson. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. That you've designed your church to operate in all settings. For some of us, it's a happy setting and easy, and that's great, and that's wonderful. And some of us, it's difficult and trying and hard, and we thank you that we're not stuck in one of those situations forever. That if we're in the sad part, we know the happiness will follow. If we're in the happy days, we know that sadness will come. We pray that we would be a robust, holy illustration of how your people are to process the world around them. We ask that you would do this for Christ's sake because he's the only one who has conquered sin and death and hell. And we are a part of his church and he is fulfilling your plan. May we find peace and safety in him for Christ's sake. Amen.